John, are you recording? Just started. Okay. Are you going? Are you going to Everybody's sing? Are you going to sing our theme song today, or am I? Pink smoke coming to your town. It's the Pink Smoke podcast. Oh man, you're gonna love it. This thing writes itself. It's done. It's written. Hello and welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, our Pulp Fiction Genre Fiction Edition. Today, myself, John Cribbs, and Mr. Christopher Funderburg are joined by a recurring guest. I believe this is his third or fourth podcast with us. Uh, fan favorite Martin Kessler. How you doing, sir? Good. Thank you for having me back on. I'm excited to talk about another book on the show. Yeah, absolutely. We always yes. We had you on to discuss the Casca, the first of the Casca novels last year, and that was a ton of fun. That was something else. <laughs> it's an amazing book. It's an amazing series. I've read a couple more of them since then. I really, I don't know how I existed without them in my life. <laughs> it was really important that you brought them to my attention, Martin. Have you been reading all the early ones actually written by him or are you like... I read one of the plagiarized ones specifically to see what was up with it. And and then I read like a sort of middle of the pack one to see how different it was when he was he was still doing it. And it's seemed the plagiarized one and did indeed seem like it was written by another human being <laughs> and uh and not the, the writer of the story of a gi yeah not not the the eight of the gi one man invincible not even one man whatever it is 12 men invincible the a team <laughs> Well, today we're going to be talking about our first science fiction novel that we've discussed so far on this podcast. Uh, yeah, we tried to talk about science fiction. John, do you remember that? But we were both under the wrong impression about Jim Thompson's The Golden Gizmo, which is about <laughs> a magic watch and a talking dog, and it's called The Golden Gizmo, and it's not science fiction at all. So this will be the not at all. science fiction novel we are discussing on the on the podcast and by one of our shared favorite authors, correct? Absolutely, 100%. And Martin, you chose which book we're going to be reading. So why don't you do the big reveal? What are we going to be talking about? Oh, it's uh, Philip K. Dick's Galactic Pot Healer. Yes, from 1969, uh, which is right after some of his really huge books, actually. It comes right after... Uh, Palmer Eldritch and Ubik, and right before Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. So kind of a more obscure one, I think, right? Within that kind of golden era. Although it's hard for, uh, it's hard to judge with Philip K. Dick, which ones are known and not known. Because I feel like what gets skewed with him is so many of his books and stories have been turned into movies that those are sort of by default the most famous ones. But I don't know if as like readers, they're the most read, well-liked ones. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. That, you know... do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep becomes Blade Runner, and that's probably his most famous book. But is like people know what Paycheck is because, or the certainly the story it's based on, because of the John Woo movie. But I don't think that that's one of the ones that the readers actually read. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even Scanner Darkly, you know, being adapted and having a big movie starring Keanu Reeves feels like. Is that one? Is that everyone's favorite? Is it? Is that a consensus favorite among fans? It's 
hard to tell with the novels. Yeah, but before we get into discussing the Philip K. Dick too much, because this is our, our first science fiction novel we've discussed on the podcast, I just wanted to ask both of you guys sort of about your personal history with science fiction, because I know, you know, John, I know you very well for a very long time. I, I know what your relationship is. And same with you, Martin, where science fiction, I think, is important to both of you guys. So I'm just curious about, like, when did you get into it? What are your, same, your favorite authors, things like of that nature? Is Philip K. Dick up your alley or is he not? Uh, sure. I, oh, sorry, if you want to go first. No, I was going to say, go ahead, Martin. Okay. No, I demand uh, Martin's answer. Forget okay. you, John. <laughs> Implied in that statement is shut it, cribs. <laughs> sure. I, I mean, I'm, I think like as far as genre stuff goes, I'm more of a science fiction person than I am, say, uh, horror. You know, even though I like a little bit of everything, I'm more of a science fiction person. And uh, as far as novels Certainly and stories I associate go, you with science fiction. Uh, I, I think so. Exactly That's... why, but I, I definitely do. Sure. And I mean, a lot of it... Uh, it's in through films and television. And of course, like when you're younger, stuff like Star Wars and Star Trek's very easy to get into. And then you kind of move into books when you want to broaden your interests. Um, I know it, it's tough to think of favorite science fiction authors because, you know, I, I'm not sure if there's a science fiction author who like has an amazing book that I haven't also read like a follow-up that I didn't like. So, yeah. you know, it, it kind of depends on the story and the concept and there's so many different kinds of science fiction stories. And I know broadly a lot of people split it into the hard science fiction and the soft science fiction. And, you know, I can appreciate something like the Martian, but I'm probably more of a soft science fiction person, like the actual mechanics and i always found that distinction very surprising that hard science fiction soft science fiction distinction i'm always shocked by who gets grouped where Uh, a lot of it seems kind of arbitrary and like obviously there's going to be a lot of overlap like you know some stuff that gets labeled soft science fiction uh has you know very thoughtful details about the actual mechanics of the world put in or you know like I don't know where you'd stick something like ring world where it's like oh you know maybe that's speculative science fiction or maybe that's pretty much fantasy it sort of yeah depends how you want to look at it or how you approach it so like in some ways that's sort of arbitrary but I I think I just gravitate towards the stuff that okay you know we have some interesting concept and we're going to use that to examine uh you know how it affects people and you know like I, I love outer limits and that sort of thing and lately I've been more into authors like Harlan Ellison and his stories. Uh, like he didn't even really consider himself a science fiction author. He thought of yeah. him as a sort of. He thought of himself primarily as an asshole. Correct. <laughs> First and foremost, but you know. Also... I don't even like the word writer. I'm really a dickhead more than anything else. <laughs> but um, I, I I like his writing a lot, and it has that sort of like science fiction as parable kind of quality to it or you know even something like hard to be a god i've talked about before in the show you know more about the film but uh, also the book like the strugatskis like it's not really hard science fiction it's almost bordering on fantasy or you know it kind of gets into that territory or um science fiction book i've read recently that i really liked was the sparrow by uh, Mary Doria Russell, which is almost like Endo's silence, but set on another planet. And that also yeah. is a little bit like Hard to Be a God. And I, I think just that type of science fiction is maybe what I 
gravitate to more over uh like i mean i've read a lot of like fluffy star wars novels about yeah. you know like fun space adventures like that that's great too but, but you're not a, a doc e. e smith edgar rice burroughs no you know, no like that's I, not really my thing so like you know when you mentioned pulpy science fiction like i was trying to think what might be a good one to pick and like philip k dick's kind of associated with like almost the hard-boiled stuff especially when you think of uh, do android stream of electric sheep and that sort of thing like he's like a little bit in that pulp tradition coming out of 1950s and 60s but he also has i don't like th this one i i do think of it as partly a pulp science fiction story but it, it also feels very different from like the out of like flash gordon kind of pulp yeah. science fiction that like a lot of people yeah. think of well for me i think the big difference in science fiction is uh, really detailed world building type science fiction where everything gets explained it has a scientific sort of background to it yeah somebody turns they... on a fucking faucet and we hear about the aqueduct system exactly <laughs> like there's really rich details and it really gets into it and then the, the softer science fiction for me is stuff that kind of just says you know what we're dealing with here guys right you know I mean it's like here's a spaceship it's called a a, a gundle or whatever <laughs> whatever <laughs> that's sort of like the that's sort of like the phil dick approach i feel is you know it's but it's you, weird that the they idea get, that we get this called world. soft because philip k dick is such hard philosophical well, philosophically it's very yeah. hard yes but in terms of the actual science fiction i think that's one of the reasons that he's a little bit uh well, certainly while he was writing that he was a little bit ostracized from some of the more serious-minded science fiction writers like Asimov and people like that was specifically that he was kind of using the genre to kind of get his ideas out and he wasn't really interested in the ideas of technology and world building the way so many people were well, when, he he does uses, a, when he does a novel with a yeah. high concept like man in the high castle then people then he gets awards for it but then when he really delves into his later career things like Valis and Ubik and things like that, where it's a lot more just about the characters and where they're going in their lives. I think that's when people, at least the science fiction crowd, maybe didn't take him quite as seriously, but Hollywood but, came But when he does world building, it's frequently to talk about how dumb the future is likely going to be as <laughs> yeah. a way of looking at how dumb right now is. That his, his world building is frequently ludicrous but like knowingly like when he describes how characters dress in a lot of his books it's intentionally absurd mm -hmm. you know with the idea being that things are absurd you know mm -hmm. and i think that that's that's also his world building i wouldn't say it's interesting it straddles the line he does give a lot of details but it's frequently in service of something completely silly you know intentionally silly. right like a guy having an argument with a door exactly <laughs> the kind of thing or does. or the willis robot in galactic popular not to get ahead of us deciding to uh, uh, affect a step and fetch it voice at one point you know <laughs> I, you know even the idea that you have to address it as willis first it, it made me think of like yeah. people with these google home things now like you have to say like google you know turn on the music or yeah. this or that like exactly it's a <laughs> perfect know. siri what are the movie times it, it's amazingly predictive just by imagining how silly things have to be done now you know mm -hmm. that i think that he he uh, he frequently gets predictions about the future right in trying to think of something irritating you know like imagine <laughs> the most irritating possible version of where technology could go 
Right. But again, that's such a conceptual thing as opposed to, you know, I've got a degree in physics, so I can perfectly explain the bathroom of the spaceship, you know? Yeah, exactly. And like something about his writing style, it makes me think a lot of uh, screenwriting, you know, like Mm -hmm. he doesn't go into details about the faucets and everything like you mentioned, but it it sort of feels like very punchy, you know, um, here's the idea, move on. Like Galactic Popular, one of the reasons why it's suggested is because it's pretty short. But yeah. I feel like, you know, every chapter there's something that like another science fiction author, like, you know, you would take one idea in that chapter and stretch it into a whole novel. Like it, it feels very rich. At the yes. Same time. If Frank Herbert wrote this book, it oh would be 20,000 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I mean, be, and be like six a, books long. Yeah. It'd be like six an months and one whole chapter would be about the Heldskala Cathedral. And like, that's it. Like Just there's about. the, uh, like the, the Tolkien-esque version of the story where, you know, the Glamung is like Gandalf and it, it takes him away and it's this like, you know, yeah. grand adventure, but like, it's not really done in that style. And I, I like that actually, like the number of science fiction stories I sort of tried to get into and it's like part one of the whatever saga and it's so drawn out and it's so yeah. kind of, uh, you know, you feel like the actual ideas are very few and far between and it's it's just for people who kind of like the, I don't know, like aesthetics. Yeah, of, there's like, the world building you know, type The world stuff. building stuff, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting when we, when, when you picked this book, I, uh, A, I had forgotten I had read it till I went to read it again because I read all of Philip K. Dick's stuff like at the same time. Like I read like right. everything in like a year and a half span. And when I read it, everything came flooding back. But one of the first things I remembered was, oh, my dad, who's a huge science fiction guy, has this massive collection of paperbacks at his house and he has Galactic Pot Healer. And the reason I remember that is because he's not a huge Philip K. Dick fan. He only has a few of them. And talking to my dad about Philip K. Dick was always interesting um, because he is that sort of like, if there's an eight book series, he he's down, you know, like that's what he loves. He wants, you know, like he's some, he's, he's the person who, when I was real young was like, you gotta read the Lensman. And then I'm sitting there trying to read these books and I'm like, how could you say this to me, dad? I thought you loved me, you know, kind of thing. Um, where it's just like endless writing kind of thing. And so his relationship to Philip K. Dick, who I think is in some ways up his alley, uh, it's fascinating. I, there's, there's the kind of science fiction authors that I like are a little bit sort of outcast writers that I think get embraced more by the literary communities than the science fiction communities. And those are like Philip K. Dick, Stanislaw Lim, the Strugansky mm-hmm. brothers. That's the kind of stuff I'm really attracted to. And those are also happen to be like the psychedelic era of science fiction as well. And the psychedelic stories I think are the most um, interesting science fiction to me and the stuff I'm most engaged with. But I grew up in a sci-fi household where my dad and my sister, it was like, you know, I've seen every episode of anything Star Trek related many times, you know, like just we had 15 tapes of Quantum Leap, you know, that kind of thing. And back in an era where I think science fiction was still um, outsider stuff, you were a fucking nerd if you liked it. And my my dad and my sister liked the nerdiest nerd shit too. <laughs> And so it was a, it was an interesting contrast. Like my first, the first Philip K. Dick I ever read was Do Androids Dream of a Electric Sheep when I was fairly young. And it was my dad's copy because I had really wanted to see Blade Runner because I loved Indiana Jones. 
And my dad was like, no, it's rated R, you're too young, and it sucks. Read this book. (laughs) Right? Like, you should read this really weird book that's super strange and interesting, not see this, like, glum, humorless, sort of thoughtless movie they made out of it. And that was actually shocking to me. That was one of the first movies I can remember as a kid. Not not that um, Blade Runner was like hailed as a as a masterpiece or something when it came out. Its its reputation I think has turned over time. Uh, but where where I encountered somebody who was sort of like, there's this thing that's supposed to be good, but it actually stinks, and the book is better, and nothing like the movie. When I'm like ten, eleven years old, you know. It's funny. I, I had a really similar experience. My dad was never really a science fiction guy. He was more of a Casca guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> my dad has um, turned into that, as I believe all. <laughs> but my my uncle, uh, and this was coming. This is right when I was starting high school. I was done with Stephen King, but had transitioned had, from Stephen King. Learned about Harlan Ellison, and so I was really into Ellison, and I heard about Blade Runner being like the science fiction movie. Yeah. So my uncle had just a, a wall just full of paperbacks, just littered with paperbacks in, you know, order of all, you know, author name, everything is all categorized. So I told him, uh, well, do you have any Philip K. Dick? And he was like, no, not a fan. <laughs> yeah. He had this giant library. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, well, I'm into Harlan Ellison. What can you give me? So he gives me A.E. Van Vogt. He gives me some Theodore Sturgeon. It's really yeah. good books. But the point, yeah, that he also, as a science fiction snob, as I was saying before, kind of ostracized Dick and didn't really, wasn't really yeah. into the novels for the same reason. Yeah, I think my dad liked him. He had, I went down to, my my mom had surgery and was bedridden last week and my dad was out of town. So I went down and helped take care of her. And I went into his collection and fished out his Philip K. Dick books. It's also sad. He's, he's a couple times been like, Chris, can you help me sell that collection of books? I'm like, dad, you're only going to get like a hundred bucks for it. And like, it's awesome. Yeah. Just keep it and give it to me. <laughs> I kind of have the idea of like, you know, because my parents are getting older, is like building a library that's permanent in some way of their books because they're both big readers and that like library always exists even after they're gone. But I pulled out the Philip K. Dick and he has a couple and he was like into it. I think he was like a hippie living in Nashville, going to Vanderbilt University in 1969, you know, and he's talked to me before about the little newsstand, like paperback stand near the campus where he would go and just like pick up whatever they had. And they were like, uh, not used, but they were, they were like um, uh, discounted editions for some reason. So all on the cover, they'll say like 95 cents, but then written in grease pencil is like 29 cents on the cover of all these books. And he had a few, I think he liked them. I just think, you know, he's, he's always been more attracted to like, like the one he really loved was Dune, you know, like Dune was completely his thing, you know, even though that comes a, a, a little later, like that's another movie when I was a kid that he just hated that movie <laughs> as much as anybody has ever hated anything. <laughs> and I would be like, why would, would he's like, it just, they shouldn't have hired David Lynch. He's a completely terrible choice for this. Be like, who do you think they should have hired? And he'd always be like, Spielberg would have been perfect. And then when Minority oh. Report came out, he was like, see, I told you, I've been telling you that Spielberg doing science fiction would have been phenomenal. He should have done Dune. Hmm. 
except for the last 20 minutes. Well, uh, uh, you know anyways. what? I'm not here to talk <laughs> about the, uh, my the, love the of Minority well. Report. I, I sort of got into Philip K. Dick like through the movies because those were cool. Yeah. Like I loved, uh, you know, Total Recall and like Blade Runner, you know, yeah. like, especially when I was getting into Philip K. Dick, like in high school, I think right around the same time, Scanner Darkly, the film was coming out. And it was like, wow, you know, this is so cool. I want to get into Philip K. Dick. Wow, and, you're so much younger than us. I, I <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but um, I saw that at a professional screening, at a preview screening, like six months before it came out. But go on. Oh, like I, I remember actually reading Galactic Pot Healer on my like on the bus trip to Toronto to do like tour the universities to see like which university I was going to. Like that was when I read it. Yeah. But uh, like coming off of, you know, Blade Runner, the film, you know, if you think the book is going to be that, it's not at all. And especially when you're yeah. like 16 and you're kind of expecting this sort of like, you know, cool noir sort of like, oh, wait, this is... Well, weird. how many people oh, read we, we Can Remember It For You host wholesale after enjoying oh. Total Recall? <laughs> like, how many, like, what the fuck? <laughs> but I, mean, I had that. That, was, that happened one, to but, me. Yeah, yeah, but still, like, the end day, just where it goes is nothing. I mean, know. it was almost to the point where it was like, wait, do I even like Philip K. Dick? When I first started, I remember kind of being like, wait, is this even for me? Like, I like these films, but I, yeah. like, that, th these books aren't these films. Um, you know, and then sort of eventually, like, kind of the more I got into it, being able to appreciate it on its own terms and just sort of realizing, like, it's its own yeah. thing. But, um, well, specifically, I mean, and, you know, I, I want to move us forward here in a minute because we're, <laughs> we got to get into our uh, picks nah, here. I'm enjoying but, Conversation. Yeah, 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 I know but, I'm the one who cracks the whip on time, so don't don't worry about it for my <laughs> well, sake. Well, I'm, I'm saying, but I'd still yeah. like to talk for a minute. Um, it's funny because I don't think they've actually made a really faithful Philip K. Dick adaptation yet. I think that Total Recall is um, faithful in the way that you have to accept that Arnold Schwarzenegger the entire time is a construct. The yeah. character doesn't actually look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He probably looks <laughs> like a fat slob, like well, most of Phil K. Dick's characters. I mean, yeah. There's so many great ideas just in that uh, story that don't make it to the film. Like, I remember in the story, there's this idea that, oh, like, you know, I, I'm just this boring guy with a boring, repetitive life. And it's like, well, that's just because that would be easier to program a bunch of memories, you know, if you have like a boring, repetitive life. Like, that's yeah. easy to fake decades of fake memories. And just really interesting ideas, you know, jam packed into this uh, small story that, like, you know, didn't even make it into the film, which, you know, it seems like an extrapolation, but it's yeah. actually, you know, pretty. Well, so many of his best you know. stories, too, are and books are like Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, mm -hmm. Ubik, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. What does a semi fateful version of those things even fucking look like? You right, know what yeah, I mean? Sure. Like, what is it even? What, do you, what would that even mean? Like, even in this book, we'll get into it. But there's there's sequences like the climactic se sequence where this giant uh, sort of kaiju fight. <laughs> well, the gigantic like uh, uh, deity like creature has enveloped them all in oh, yeah. some way. You know, like how would you even film that? You know, what does that even mean when they're sort of enveloped in this creature? And that's the entire you know climax of the film. You can't you go know? the Pacific high, uh, Pacific Rim. Uh... <laughs> road for that yeah yeah <laughs> um let's but i want to get into the film so let me get this going uh for every episode of the pulp fiction podcast we 
suggested a pair of teeth to these books, a good artwork that you should check out before reading Galactic Pot Healer by Philip K. Dick. Uh, Martin, what is your pick for something that someone should enjoy before getting into the pages of this book? Uh, it's an animated series called Space Dandy by Shinichiro Watanabe, who's the same person who did um, Cowboy Bebop, which probably oh, okay. I'm guessing people who have if you're listening to the show, you might have already seen or at least heard of, but um, it's sort of a space comedy series. And I, I don't think it's as popular as Cowboy Bebop because it's kind of frivolous by design. But um, if you like the sense of humor, I, I think like it's a little bit in line with some of the humor that's in Galactic Potter, like... Um, I think did they show this at, this on Toonami on Adult Swim? I feel like I've seen. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I mean it's the same. Like if you think I will pay you thirty five thousand crumbles is funny, then you'll probably like Space Dandy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know it, it's funny. It's sort of strange, kind of like offhand stories where you know there's not necessarily continuity from one episode to the next. Like the main character might die in one episode and then come back as if nothing happened, but then you know, they'll get into interesting ideas about the dimensionality or, uh, you know, they'll take an interesting sci-fi concept and explore it in a way that's very silly and kind of mixes it with, you know, the 1950s sort of pulp tropes that uh, I, I think, you know, I mean, talking about how you might adapt Galactic Pod Healer, like I almost pictured it, uh, you know, if you were going to do a film version of it, it m might not even be a live action film. It might be an animated film might be the only way for it to yeah. work like i sort of in my head the way i picture like the kind of combination of the mundane stuff with the outlandish outrageous sort of stuff or you know having a, a spider person talking about faust like it, yeah I think it would work reading his own translation of faust animated story you know and the way you can kind of have that detail and i think a lot of like japanese animation does it well where you kind of mix these sort of everyday details with something really outlandish, you know, like it, I was just watching the Pat Labor films the other day and it's like, you know, the paperwork looks like, you know, real life and the TV screens, but then you also have giant robots and just like those kinds of juxtapositions, you know, I can sort of picture Galactic Pod Healer almost working as a, you know, as an animated film like Akira or something like that, maybe. I'm it's surprised that more- interesting. Oh. I was going to say, I'm surprised that more uh, adaptations haven't gone the Scanner Darkly route of using animation. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, John. You said you felt like there hasn't been a really faithful adaptation done. And I was surprised that you don't think Scanner Darkly is fairly faithful. I mean, it changes a lot. Only but... in that Scanner Darkly is such a different kind of book for in Philip K. Dick's library. You know, it's a very specific sort of sentiment. It's a very specific sort of time that he's capturing there. Yeah. So you get away with it being kind of more of a slick kind of story the way that Scanner Darkly is. I, I mean, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, on the whole, when you think about a Philip K. Dick, the, the Philip K. Dick formula in general, I think has not been done in a movie yet. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. What is uh, your aperitif, Chris? My aperitif is uh, Werner Fassbender's Fear of Fear from 1975. Awesome. I was going to talk about later how Fassbender and Philip K. Dick's careers, even though they you wouldn't connect them artistically, for me that they have a really similar sort of narrative. Yes. What, reading, rereading this book this time, this book is a book about 
depression in some way and sort of the the burden of existence getting to someone in just an ineffable way and sort of the days stretching out in front of them fear of fear was a made for tv movie in which margaret cartinson plays a housewife who is suffering from uh, situational depression in an era sort of before the language existed to articulate uh, domestic unhappiness in that way where she's got like a good husband and nice kids and what should be a satisfying life that's completely unsatisfying to her to a point where it, it terrifies her that she's not satisfied by her life and um it's a fascinating film to me. The, this book is more than a lot of Philip K. Dick's books, I think is really about unhappiness and sort of the, the burden of just trying to exist, you know, and, and being stuck sort of with no meaningful, unable to derive meaning from your own life you know, and, and how it weighs on you. And also there's something in fear of fear, which is, I got to be clear is not one of Fassbender's best movies. I'd say it's one of, you know, bottom 10, probably. Um, it's, I'd agree with that. it's just kind of blandness to it, but it has Kurt Robb who he worked with a ton as this like weirdo who's the only person who understands Margaret Cartinson's character. And they're sort of like drawn to each other. And he almost was like uh, a glimming type character to me when I was reading this is just, there's this other thing that has this other, like there's this unhappy person greeted by this almost like supernatural presence who understands them better than anybody, even though they're completely different kinds of people. You know, Kurt Robb's character is sort of like a, a dressed in black, almost um, pre-hipster-ish kind of weirdo, like almost like a human ghost vampire kind of thing. He's like a supernatural force in this other very straight ahead domestic type movie. And just something about their dynamic remind me of, of Galactic Pot Healer's main character, Joan, Joe Fernwright, who's like an office drone who, who doesn't, or not even an office drone, he just has a job and doesn't have work to do and has nothing, no way to fill up his days being confronted by this like galactic pseudo deity who's the only thing who understands him and on, on how how unhappy he is I think it's great it's an interesting pick i agree it's not one of his best movies but it is like anything fassbender did interesting in its yes. own right and i would say the kurt rob margaret cartinson scenes make it worth watching and it's and it's you know um to me it's also like a more a less bombastic version of jean dealman in some ways <laughs> You know, <laughs> like it's it's a more like a sort of sober version of that. Perfect. My John, pick, what is your pick? My pick, and I'm not going to lie, it was somewhat inspired by our guest today, is Ruka, a.k.a. The Hand, the 1965 animated film by uh, Yuri Trinka. <laughs> uh, probably his best known film, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of interesting connections I think to this story where in Trinka's film you have uh, a godlike hand offering a humble potter money, riches to work for him to make him a sculpture and the potter in this case is not interested he uh, completely rejects the idea of selling out to this giant bullying god 
that is uh, that is on top uh, that is above him at all times and breaking into his house and uh, there's a lot of pots that get broken and not healed in this movie they get swept <laughs> under the bed and every time a pot gets broken you have this horrible sense of loss this really just depressing feeling every time this hand barges into a door or a window and knocks over one of his pots that he's crafted um, there's a part in Galactic Pot Healer where the godlike entity uh, gives his message to uh, to Joe through a phonograph and in the hand uh, he gets a message on a television set so it's kind of an interesting similarity there but yeah. uh, really the hand uh, it's a story of course about free will being taken away by this malevolent deity and um, is ultimately hilarious a really really funny movie that is also very very heavy very depressing kind of film um my poor wife watched it was like thanks a lot now you ruined my day having to watch that <laughs> um but a great film that everyone should see it's on youtube it's only 18 minutes long yeah, it's under that's a really perfect perfect one yeah john how many times a week would you say your wife says to you sarcastically thanks a lot john a hundred uh, a thousand a day or a week <laughs> a week <laughs> i'm i'm always ruining her day for sure yeah no matter what. Okay, so just to give a brief synopsis of the book, uh, what we're dealing with here is uh, Joe Fernwright, a pot healer, barely getting by on a war veteran's dole in dystopian Cleveland in the year 2046. Undoubtedly, that's why the film picked that year. Yeah, uh, 2046 picked it. <laughs> I did have that thought. You read it and you're like, must be an influence. <laughs> um, so... In this society, plastic is replacing ceramic pottery, and so Fernwright finds himself constantly out of work. Uh, he and finds, by pot healer, you mean he fixes he broken cures, pots? It's literally broken pots. Yeah. Yes, mends them until they are new, according to him. He's that yeah. good. Indistinguishable um, from new. Yes, uh, he finds several cryptic messages, including one in his toilet that promises his life will change. And they lead him to the planet of Sirius V, a.k.a. the Plowman's Planet, where a powerful but possibly diminished being known as the Glimming has gathered specialists from around the universe to assist in the raising of Hetzkala, the cathedral built for the god Amalita from the depths of Mare Nostrum. And there he meets coral expert Maliojez and put-upon robot Willis and the giant mass that is Glimming himself. So what you have here... Uh, like a lot of Philip K. Dick premises is the depressed common man, not even, we couldn't even call him blue collar at this point, I think, because he is complete, has lost all his self-worth. He's divorced from his wife, uh, not an amiable divorce from his wife, and completely separated from his old life. And so he is taken away to this other world and meets this other, these other people. And the idea of this giant deity coming in you see in a lot of Philip K. Dick books, obviously, like in Ubik and Palmer Eldritch and whatnot. So that's where we go. That's where we start off from there. Yes. And to me, the, the basic uh, philosophical idea driving this book, which isn't a lot of Philip K. Dick books, but that's certainly center stage here, is what, what is a god? 
you know, like what is, how do we define what a God is and how it behaves and what it does? And one of the things that's most fascinating about this book is the way in which it sort of presents a bunch of deities that seem to be all powerful. Like you feel like you're kind of getting finally to the top level to sort of have the the rug pulled out from underneath of you in some way. You know, that this is really... Um, you know, the question of can God build a rock so heavy he can't lift it? You know, is a cathedral slate so big your God can't lift it? Question asked over and over again of, you know, it, what is a, a God? What is a deity? If he was an all-powerful deity, would he fall through the stage of a hotel through 10 floors into the basement? Yes. <laughs> he doesn't want to intimidate you. Yeah. Yes. It is a scene that reminded me, by the way, of the Futurama where Bander has gained all, turned human and gained all the weight and has to be rolled onto the stage. <laughs> it it reminded me of The Simpsons <laughs> when the frat is hazing Homer and he falls off you know they think he's going to fall off the building but they're just having him jump off the stage and he falls <laughs> through it's not a frat uh, the uh, the secret society right yeah the stone cutters yeah, yeah through like <laughs> 12 floors <laughs> i have to do it again my blindfold came off um yeah this book is you know like martin said this is a very slim book too my the copy i have from the paperback from 1969 is 144 pages and very 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 quick read um how do we want to tackle this what ta what tack do we want to take on digging into this book well i guess what um, i want to ask one thing also i think that we should say up front john you and i are like big philip k dick fans and early on he's one of the writers you and i sort of bonded over having a love of his work so i i'm worried in this episode i'm going to have a little bit of like not ex not to say i'm an expert but like expert syndromes where like i know his work so well like what's what's actually interesting to people because it all seems very like straight ahead to me like what we've just described is a crazy sounding book but to me it's like yeah standard philip k dick stuff this is <laughs> the ones you know like yeah, they're yeah. just trying to raise a cathedral for an ocean from a uh, you know <laughs> sort of petulant and sympathetic godlike creature who has his own you know demons to fight against and negative image of himself you know the story where they get the furry ice cube alien who's an expert at <laughs> exactly uh, yeah, uh, archaeology and uh but uh what i want to ask martin actually he kind of touched upon it earlier but i was sp curious martin what about this particular yeah uh, philip k dick novel uh led you to want to talk about it compared to the other ones um i mean i, I think it's just like the ratio of ideas per <laughs> chapter kind of a situation where like it, it's so slim but you get so much out of it I thought there'd be a lot to talk about and yeah. also the, the sense of humor like I, I really think this is probably one of the funniest Philip K. Dick books like it's uh, I don't know about you guys but some of it I thought was like laugh out loud funny like the Limung being like I'm not broke. I'm merely parsimonious. I'm still on the free enterprise. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. some of the talking about like, oh yeah, like Plowman's plan at the income tax is pretty high. It just some of yeah. the weird things are so <laughs> funny because they're just like slightly, um, you know, like it, it's unusual, but like they're, they're almost so mundane for how ridiculous the situation is. Like a lot yeah. of it's hilarious or uh, like, there's an incredible variety of humor 
there's like dumb pun humor and like broad goofball comedy and like super sharp satire and like really cerebral funny stuff there's an incredible variety you know there's the stuff about like the elmo plaskett sinks giants Mm -hmm. as like a running gag that's sort of goofy on its own that's turned into something more ridiculous by joe fernwright and moments you know it's an old newspaper headline where they're trying to find the most ridiculous headline they can in old newspapers and from 1962 there's the headline elmo plaskett sinks giants and everybody says what does that mean and they start in well he came up from the minors and then get cut off you know that it's a baseball headline in some way you know but the way of course it will be thematically important when later on this little guy from a different planet sinks a giant, literally. Right. Exactly. Do you guys exactly. know the story of Elmo Plaskett? No, no. idea. He only no played idea. 17, he played 10 seasons in the minors, only played 17 professional games. And his best known game, which is this, this headline that they find, uh, was when he hit a three-run homer and beat the Giants. And that was literally the only kind of prestigious game he ever had in his life. Who did he play for? What team was he on? Then you're going to ask that. Um, oh, shit. I'm sorry. No, I can't remember. But um, they were playing against the Giants. I know that much. The, the Philadelphia Pittsburgh Steagles. Got it. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, Chris, you already kind of got to the core of the story. But like, I, I feel like there's also a lot of other little themes that are strung together throughout the story. Like, yes. One thing I really like is the, um, the idea of how language is into, is open to interpretation and how misleading it can be and how confusing it can be. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's sort of a recurring thing from the, the game that they play where they punch in the title of a book over this sort of internet-like service and translate it and then translate it back and try to figure out the original title, um, you know, to... Him and other bored people in unfulfilling dead end careers. He's, <laughs> right. He's essentially filling his life up with this as the as the pot healing work has dried up before Glimmon comes and offers him uh, a deeper right. purpose. And it's called but the game, like have... with a capital G, like it's fucking Highlander or something. <laughs> yeah, no, when they mention it too, you're like, oh, what's the game going to be? You know, <laughs> it's going to be like Michael Douglas and Sean Penn getting up. <laughs> after, like, the offer comes into, uh, after the offer comes into Joe Fernwright's life and it's, it's like his buddy's still trying to get him into, he's like, oh, I got you a really good one. And he's like already preoccupied with this other thing but this buddy's just like no no like you got to hear it like it's the best thing ever but like you know the and it's way a that great joke of- too where he doesn't translate them either he mm-hmm. leaves a few of them to just waft in the air for the reader to figure out which <laughs> right. is a fun funny joke too but it ties into like, in interpreting these like religious texts and prophecies and like how those can be kind of open to interpretation or misleading or uh you know and trying also, to make sense yeah. of that how language plays the percentages because there's that are they called kalinda is that the name of the alien race there's an alien race once they get to the plowman's planet the Callens, yeah the Callens. sure is it Callen? Callens, yeah caitlin's Callens, yeah. yeah um who are like in somehow in opposition to the glimming creature which is the single godlike creature that's trying to raise the cathedral and they write this book that's very very philip k dick idea which is the book is sort of like you know in um chocla fatalist shot keeps talking about how there's a great scroll that god has written that unspools and we can see it as it unspools and whatever was written was written and that's the idea of this book that it's constantly rewriting itself 
as reality is unfolding, but it's also making predictions for the future, and those predictions uh, prove to be true or not true. Um, and a lot of it's open to interpretation, though, right? Where they're arguing over the translation of specific words, whether it means this group of scientists that's been brought to this planet are going to die or whether they're going to be maimed or whether they're going to be spiritually impacted by something they're doing in the future that this book predicts. But also how religious texts play the percentages, where if this book says that you're going to do something on this planet that will cause you to die, well, like everybody's going to die eventually, and what do you mean by this caused you to do it, you know, or played a role in it, you know? And I think that that's one of the perceptive things about it, is the way in which religious texts make predictions that are inevitable, but makes them feel specific, you know, that kind of um, uh, Nostradamus thing of like, wow, he predicted so much by being sort of open-ended and playing the percentage. Did, did you think that the uh, ocean being called Mary Nostrum, it's like a little nod to Nostradamus? Uh, no, but that's a good, uh, I actually had a different relationship to it, what it made okay. me think of, which I'll talk about during my dessert, when you and, guys are like, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things, like, I, I wasn't sure, like, if that was meant to have some other, you know, little hint, but, like, uh, getting into, you know, the idea of a feeling of lack of direction or purpose, and the idea of trying to find purpose through work and meaning through work you know the way it's it sort of realized like on the small scale but also on this grand you know almost mythic scale with the uh glimung like you know the idea that he's trying to accomplish this work but there's this uh shadow self that's trying to stop him and you know lives under the ocean and it's like this depressive force that tries to keep you from accomplishing any work and it's yeah um, you know, like it, I, it's I, a really big depression metaphor. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but also, you know, ideas like, you know, and this is almost open ended. But if, um, you know, if maybe it's more rewarding to create something than to restore something. You know, it's, at the very end, it, it kind of ends on this uh, great line of. Uh, Joe, you know, he's instead of restoring pots, he's going to try to make his own. And it's like he gave up everything to go off and make his own pot. And it's terrible. It's awful. And, you know, it makes me think like a little bit of, um, you know, art or film, especially where, you know, sometimes it, like it's fun to watch films and discuss films and, you know, write about them and promote them and stuff like that. But sometimes you're like, oh, I'd probably be happier making one even if it's terrible yeah. you know and sort of ideas like that i could relate to and it's, it's really you know. interesting because when i read this i told you i'd forgotten i had read this book when i read it started reading it again like 20 words in everything came flooding back and when i was like 23 24 years old i made a feature film for eight thousand dollars called the strangest bullet in my skull which was incredibly inspired by this book and i had forgotten how much i took from this book for my movie in some way i think philosophically more than plot wise sure. you know it's a, it's another book that's about a future is the future inevitable or not and my movie a scientist invents a machine that takes an entire picture of the universe all at once and using physics extrapolates everything that's going to happen from that moment forward right and then 
obviously things go awry. There's like a, the, the antagonist of the movie receives a fortune cookie, like in fortune cookies come up in this book too, that says one day you will be murdered by a scientist, right? <laughs> and he becomes obsessed with the idea of like, oh shit, this is the scientist from the fortune cookie prophecy who's invented this machine that tells the future and things like go <laughs> awire from there. And there's like a guy who's the head of security for a company who's owned by the company. They like created him a clone lab to be like a piece of corporate property, which again is like echoes the sort of totalitarian state of this book where people are sort of owned by society in some fundamental way in this book. But one thing I also remember while, while filming it uh, to, you know, same thing where to tie into your point, I was very much inspired to go out and like make my own art even if it's terrible because of this book and like the, the long and short of strangest poet in my skull, which I have a lot of affection for now could be the film was awful, right? Sure. Like it could be the same last line of this book. But I remember when we went to film it, trying to do things and how there's something miraculous about what Philip K. Dick does that he has the nerve to stick to writing books like this. When we were making my movie, the head of security. So you have this main character and then you have his boss who's only in like two scenes. I wanted his boss to be played by a fish in a fish tank with speakers hooked up to it (laughs) with the idea that his boss was a fish sitting in front of like a flat screen TV with like a bunch of security feeds on it. And then these two and everyone except for John Cribbs was like, don't do this. This is (laughs) ludicrous. Like, don't do it. And I was like, and I got talking out of it and now in the movie it's just a guy in a suit you know who like ah, go get that go do your security stuff and that was again like you read this book and that like i'm sure every book he wrote editors reasonable human beings people who cared about him were like don't make the head of security a fish you know like i'm just sure his whole career was like you know don't do that don't have Glamung have a personal secretary that you introduce late in the movie just because that's a funny idea, you know, like. Well, I think even, um, I think exactly what I said was, well, Murray Funderburg's not going to like that idea if he didn't like the Dune movie. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, what you, that, what you actually said, John, do you remember what you actually said when I floated that? No. You said, I like it. It's like the dolphin and Johnny Mnemonic is literally <laughs> what you said to me. <laughs> I had Gibson on the mind, but, uh, but, but, but even relevant to this podcast, two months ago, we were discussing a book um, called The Burnt Orange Heresy by yeah. Charles Williford, which is a book about an art critic who is an expert in art and can interpret art perfectly and decides at one point that he is good enough to create a painting. And the exact line that we forgery. talked about on that episode, yeah. it was just forgery of a famous artist, is that the... His his girlfriend sees the painting and says, "Oh, you made this awful painting." That's yeah. the first thing I thought of when I read the last line of this yeah. book. You know, it was all, that the the pot was awful. And it's funny too because normally when you give away like a super impactful last line of a book, you're spoiling the book in some way. Not at all with this. Mm-hmm. I feel like it doesn't need a spoiler warning. Don't realize. Don't worry. Nothing is spoiled by knowing that he eventually makes an awful pot. Of his own. <laughs> it's funny because it is such an incredibly mean-spirited joke in some ways to end the book on, but I actually find that last section very hopeful in some way. You know what I mean? I don't find the end of this book 
depressing, even though I feel like that's the only way you can take it. Well, you know like, what I mean? Um, that's this idea in the book that, like, you know, oh, you've all, like, you're afraid to fail. You know, the importance of risking failure, you know, yeah. is necessary to kind of feel alive or, you know, like, maybe there's nothing to gain if you don't risk something. And I, I think yeah. that's maybe especially true for well, art. All the matter and, is inertia and, and <laughs> towards entropy and destruction that the, the story of existence is sort of human biological failure eventually well, and to not be afraid. Uh, like the connection between that and certainty, you know, in the prophecies yeah. that like, you know, again, going back to the idea of feeling depressed, it's a, a sort of certainty, you know, you don't want to, yeah do something because you know what it's going to be like and how it's going to turn out. And I'm not even going to, you know, I, I don't even know if you'd call it depression, but like that feeling of I'm not going to try this because I know it's going to fail. It's sort of, yeah. You know, I don't know, like that, that all kind of threads through the novel in a way that I think, you know, makes that last line sort of uh, alleviating. Like it's, you know, it's it's funny and it's sad and it's sort of hopeful all at once, which makes it really great. Well, the, the thing too that Glimming tells him is that what you all have in common, all these people I brought together to raise the cathedral, is that you're afraid of failure. You fail so many times that you're afraid of failure. Yeah. And it seems like a positive message that he's putting out there. That he's going to unite <laughs> these people to actually do something constructive together, you know, as a group. But when you think about it, it's just another way of creating a totalitarian government the way that he just, the one that he just left, where everyone yeah. is, is melded absorbed together. Into <laughs> absorbed into society. Exactly. And they all work as one mind, which, you know, is not individualism in any way whatsoever. And your characteristics, your what distinguishes you is completely obliterated. So the fact that he's willing, he's the one, you know, one of two people who says, I'm not interested in continuing yeah. with you. That he and breaks again, off yeah and that's what risk and yeah. not a reject predeterminism mm -hmm. in way. yeah it, that's it what is. reminds me of fear of fear though too is that he rejects it but he's also somebody who through no intention of his own cuts against the grain of society that he just doesn't feel comfortable living the life that everybody else seems comfortable inside of it causes him anxiety to simply be in this society you know mm -hmm. yeah. and and he just can't he can't get with the program and i think that's what's interesting at the end too is again like everybody else to sort of join in perfect harmony with this uh all-powerful organism he just can't do it you know just like he's he doesn't have it in him he just for some reason he cuts against the grain well, and he's and not a defiant character he's not a strong character you know he's somebody mm -hmm. who wishes he could fit in i think fundamentally and the the love interest sort of character maliojes like she she stays and he sort of thinks about her as <laughs> as he, he's heartbroken behind he, yeah. he's heartbroken that like she she decided to become part of this uh, absorbed into the glimmung and like that also is very Philip K. Dick, but like it, it's sort of interesting that Glimmung, it's, um, it, you kind of go back and forth as you're reading it, like, is this a benevolent thing? Is it malevolent? You know, they start doubting its motivations at one point, like when everyone's recruited together on the spaceship talking, like, you know, they start to wonder, okay, did it orchestrate 
these desperate situations just to be able to recruit us. Like, yeah. And even uh, Joe, like, it's a, a very like drawing room mystery scene of like our host isn't who he claims to be. It's a little bit of that like Philip K. Dick paranoia creeping in, and it's yeah. like the glimming. He's not really malevolent or benevolent he's just kind of like an employer really you know and he i think he even refers to himself as like your employer and like really that that's what it is at the end it's not like uh you know a god or a devil yeah he's sending like corporate notes to him from under the the water (laughs) that are popping up that that literally say this has been a public service announcement He seems heroic to me by the end, yeah. in the sense of like a Greek hero. He yes. reminds me of Hercules or Sisyphus, if you want to call Sisyphus a hero. This great yeah. undertaking. Well, like yeah. the, uh, I mean, some of the group, like he gets compared by, um, what's it, a quasi-arachnid to uh, yeah. Faust, which like is kind yeah. of a weird comparison, but you know, they're, they're like even discussing like, well, Faust dies at the end, so maybe the Glimmon's going to die. You know, yeah. Compare it. And it gives it this sort of, you know, mythical quality, this creature kind of like battling with its dark self to raise this yeah. mighty cathedral. It's, you know, this kind of almost biblical sort of Yeah, and also to bring it back to your point about language and how knowledge functions, everybody's sort of um, received interpretation of what Faust is, which Joe Fernwright admits he hasn't read, but he still has opinions on like, what is the meaning of the Faust story and is Faust's downfall inevitable? You know, that sort of everybody's offering their own interpretation, including the quasi-arachnid who's (laughs) done his own translation of it into English, which isn't his native tongue, and comes out very strange sounding. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's also, you know, getting into this idea of like the collective, that kind of sadness of all being the same. Like early on in the story, it's interesting the details that are given about this sort of dystopic world that he's living in. Like, um, what's really sort of strange and sad are the advertisement dreams like everyone has yeah. the same dream and like that's a very futurama i, I think futurama did a bit Literal, with, uh, yeah. underwear commercials in the dream <laughs> underwear yeah. commercial in the dream but it's yeah. sort of like uh, a similar idea where you know everyone just has the same dream and it has like some <laughs> that's written in by somebody and gets drawn out of a hat or something yeah yes. that you can it win a contest dream. to have your dream <laughs> <laughs> produced god this book is so good and so funny you know it's also with that kind of stuff when it talks about joe's apartment where he has the tv wall that's like in total recall you know that's of a of a um pastoral scene outside his window right giving this tiny cramped apartment the impression that it's like in front of a huge vista instead of a cramped dingy city but his has like died in some way so it's just a black screen on the wall right that he hasn't bothered to get fixed that is a really interesting idea and again why i thought of fear of fear is like it's a domestic dystopia you know what I mean? Like the dystopia isn't like Mad Max or or the Matrix or something. The dystopia is like, God damn, my house sucks. You know, like we're, we're <laughs> it's not people fighting over uh, oil and water. It, it's sucks. like hyperinflation dystopia. Yeah, it's a tiny like, cramped apartment. Again, like yeah. Futurama. It's an apartment just big enough to stand up in. You right. Know? 
and then he almost gets arrested on the street for not walking fast enough to work. Yeah, the cops. It's funny <laughs> that you mentioned Futurama too now. The cops in this book are very Futurama type cops. Yes. Also, these sort of like circular logic blowhards who have like mind reading devices and stuff. And it's not clear what they're after or what they're trying to enforce. And they seem both like... There isn't anything and you can do to get 35,000 crumbles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you and must like, be up to no good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, how did you get this 65 quarters? I also love that moment early yeah. on in the book when the poor people just sort of like surround him and just want to see the quarters and they he all sort of put their hands out and yeah. he starts giving them to people. That's just a great moment of why did I do that? And then he said, oh no, did the glimming make me do that? And I think that that again gets to the idea of a deity in here where this book is acting what is a god is like again it's about the free will there is like did a did a god make me do that or did i do that myself you know and then you sort of see that line again which is that's the preoccupation of so much faith and and stories about faith is the the uh possibility of free will and what do we mean by free will and those sort of questions but to put it in the context of something sort of funny um it's not a great moral decision that he's made it's sort of like i did something kind of pointless and stupid that i immediately regret is that god doing that you know if god is all powerful why is he kind constantly making me do like bullshit you know like why is why is my mind full of nonsense like when he starts playing the game and thinking about elmo plaskett sings giants right when it's unsure whether the glimming has survived its final confrontation or not and he's like why is my head full of this crap i thought the glimming controlled my mind you know it's it all pays off the whole mystery of you know what the glimming is doing to him later in the novel when it uh when he goes against his wishes by going under the water to see the cathedral for himself yeah uh while the glimming is sleeping and then he appears to him you know as a giant eagle and is like what the fuck are you doing oh, it's so i told you not to go under the water it's so book of job where god shows up and is like you fucking idiot <laughs> you know like you know where like and he's like i'm sorry i just wanted to know why you've forsaken me and he's like you don't listen is your problem now i gotta fix this well and the whole thing of like you're and you're like i'm sorry god i thought you were god the right religious advice like i, I like the yeah. phone in advice thing where it's like you can select you know roman catholic zen puritan muslim oh, so funny <laughs> you know so funny the like... religious bromides for each faith are so fucking funny <laughs> it's pretty great <laughs> And they're all reasonable, too. That's the thing. And also then the joke of, like, he doesn't have enough money to pay, so the Buddhist one, or the, the Jewish one, ends before it's over. It just hears, <laughs> with a bowl, of, a man with a bowl of fat, warm soup. And it's like, that does sound exactly, you. we got it, we got the joke, and then it ends halfway through. And then what he takes from it is, that sounds pretty good. I think I'm going to get a <laughs> right now. Martian fat, warm soup. The most <laughs> nourishing fat, warm soup there is in the planet in all of the galaxy um i mean all the economic stuff it, like that's some of the funniest uh, to me too like the, <laughs> when they first get together like the crew to raise the cathedral like right away they start talking about making a union yeah. <laughs> it's like one of the first things and you know they sort of touch on like it doesn't get too much into it but it sort of implies like it's sort of a socialist uh, dystopia that yeah with American Citizens Republic and the, the kind of contrast with the Glimung who's like offering these like vast sums but who's maybe either 
stingy or might even be broke like yeah <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely a society in which it seems like if the soviet bloc countries not even russia but the soviet bloc countries somehow won and were in charge for the next hundred years right and like you know you think of um man of the high castle like i wouldn't even be surprised yeah. if dick had like something similar in mind like oh what if <laughs> but uh, just yeah what if romania had been <laughs> in charge of all had won that international global it's like, uh, it's like 1984 but just you know with with that kind of weirdness and sense of humor kind of injected into it a little bit for those first couple yeah. you know first little section but uh, that's such a great joke too yeah. of like we're going to unionize and all you've heard about the glimming at this point is that it's a massive ancient creature that's replaced the fog creatures the fog <laughs> things that formerly ruled this uh, this planet of Plowman's planet and like, that appears just like the a idea of fire of... and it's like we're going to yeah. unionize against it. Exactly. <laughs> I, uh, the, the radio show that um, he calls into when the like... The Cavorting Carrie Cairn show? Right. He's like, where am I? And they're like, oh, very reasonable question. And the Glimmung calls into the radio show and he's like, Dwight L. Glimmung here <laughs> yes. in my basement. And uh, Dude, Glad we solved that one. Thanks for calling in. <laughs> uh, like there's just that, that kind of absurdity and silliness that, you know, it's simultaneously hilarious and also kind of like horrific just how you know, you imagine like what, and, what that might be like. <laughs> yeah, and more accurate. It reminds you yeah. of those weird, like on Twitter, you'll see these like calls thrown out to the the masses that are like, why is somebody just asking on Twitter? Like, does anybody <laughs> does anybody know where I'm physically located right now? And they'll get responses. It does. It ends up being accurate in a funny way, where you know this technology is put in service of of absolutely ludicrous things that mm -hmm. that whoever invented them and conceived of their uses would say, no, that's not on the list of their uses. You know, and then you see that that's exactly how shit gets used. But it's sort of interesting, like how this doesn't feel dated to me at all. Like, it's amazing when it was written compared to like just the technological stuff. It's, um, yeah. I don't know, I think Philip K. Dick, like, it's not really done as a predictive science fiction story, but it just feels so savvy as far as like, uh, you know, you're sort of talking before about like how technology gets used and just. <laughs> how, how it kind of infiltrates our lives, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's about a lot of the infiltration too and about how technology, uh, again, that's the theme of technology in this book is how much technology uh, predicts and controls our future right. and our world where they have the, is it an SSA machine mm -hmm. where Molly and him are on the, the plane and they're sort of hooked up to a machine together and it's not, a precognitive machine. The stewardess who hooks them up is sure to say it's sort of this machine that extrapolates a future between two people based on sort of like their shared feelings in that moment. Like it predicts the future, you know? And that's one of the running themes in this book is, is how much are we beholden to predictions, but also as machines become more advanced and seem to know everything, is that true? 
you know, like the robot, like the Willis bot, you know, like what does this actually know about the world? And they're using it as an authority until it admits that like it's written its own pamphlet because it hopes to become a freelance writer someday. And you're like, oh, I'm fucking another one of these. (laughs) And And also like how, you know, information and stuff like that can deliberately mislead you. Like the, the, you talks about the government encyclopedia and these explanations, oh, why robots are impossible and yeah, really not true. And it's just like, oh, what's on Sirius 5? Even, <laughs> right. you know, which is nothing. The, the government encyclopedia says it's not an uninhabited planet with lower life forms. And then he gets there and they are lower life forms. They're like these weasels, but they drive trucks very well and, <laughs> you know, uh, sell books and act like you would expect uh, a, a, a civilized thing to do. You know, well, and like the the whole idea with the robots, like oh, like there's no robots on Earth, uh, and they say it's impossible, but really it's like they, they don't want them made because of uh, problems with unemployment and yeah, you know, like you know, there's sort of a a reason why that information's withheld or you know why these people are misled and uh, I. <laughs> The, the Plowman's planet is so interesting the way it's described the kind of mixture of the, the old fashioned and the, the weird sci-fi stuff like I, I yeah. love the description of the hotel there it's got this uh, old fashioned elevator with an attendant yeah just thinking about like the, the strange it feels very like Jim Thompson's The Grifters right like it, it, <laughs> I mean you know the, the kind of I, yeah, I don't know like that strong juxtaposition between like oh this weird old hotel and like the weird alien planet yeah um, how those go together like you know going back to the animation point about like how you know I, I don't know if you've seen like cowboy bebop or any of those but like, yeah 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 to get away with that sort of thing in animation but it feels like really jarring and weird if you try to do it in a film i think yeah yeah I, I think that it's part of the reason Dick, there's no um, very faithful adaptation of Dick is that you go, well, what does this actually look like? It looks yeah. ludicrous. You, you're running the risk of making Howard the Duck or the Super Mario Brothers movie. Sure. If like, you try and hew closely <laughs> to this, you know, yeah. it's just, it's too insane. John, could I ask you a question? Cause you've been a little quiet. This is something we haven't talked about Dick much. What do you think he's ultimately trying to say about precognition and destiny like do you have a tack and a take on that because i sort of do but it's not very well refined my thoughts i think um i think that dick was struggling throughout his fiction and in his writing to kind of grasp spiritual ideas of his own after he was done writing this book uh he wrote in his journal that he was worn out and has di- and i have died as a writer he said he scraped the bottom of the barrel and died creative and creatively and spiritually. What a misery it was, which is kind of harsh to think about after you know this yeah. is such an enjoyable book. But it makes sense because it's such a struggle with exactly the thing that you were talking about earlier. What is a god? Do we just have this prankster Oz character, you know, looking over our lives and trying to govern us and convince us that you know the path we're on is the one that he set forward for us? And of course, Dick, you know, later had his meltdown um, and claims he had these visions of an entity that visited him and the end of his life and his fiction, you know, really devolved into this kind of uh, psychotic episode of having, you know, uh, wanting to grasp an actual deity and actually having some kind of a personal destination. But 
it's just sort of like he was plotting his own life the way his books were because they were all about the character, the, the boss in Ubik and the Palmer Eldridges who, you know, are leading us in a certain way, leading the characters in a certain way uh, that is completely deceptive and, and yeah. harmful. So I think that Dick is very, very suspicious and very paranoid about the ideas that were all leading yeah. down a faded path. And that were some evil giant's toy. That that's yes. what God is. That there's a fear, or or a more charitable version, that they're like Greek gods, these sort of giant-sized mortals locked in their own very human, emotional, intellectual battles. Right, and by the end, he doesn't even know which is the 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 dark glumming and which one is the the real one, the the yeah. quote unquote good one. It's interesting because the same year he uh, wrote a a children's book called uh, the the glumming of. Uh, Plowman's Planet or Nick and the Glumming. And so I think that makes it even more clear that he kind of saw this particular deity as an Oz-like character, like a deceptive yeah. deity who actually is just a man behind a curtain, you know, manipulating But I actually people. find it like really sympathetic at a certain point, especially when like the ancient fog thing approaches him and he gets like nervous and has to make a decision about what to do. Like there's something, yeah, but go on. It's yeah, no, when, when Questabar approaches him in the last, what, 10 pages of the book, Questabar, you're alive. Yeah, and Questabar's like, look, you can go in there, but uh, don't maybe. <laughs> and you see yeah. like, is Questabar his boss in some way? So then Chris, my answer would be, I think that PKD was struggling with these issues as much as any philosopher would you know you know what i think but and i'm curious if you guys agree with this i think what bothers him about the future and why he's obsessed with precognition and destiny is that you when you read his book you get the feeling that pkd really believes the future must be knowable in some way it must it's the nature of reality that the future must be knowable in the way the present is knowable and the past is knowable but for some reason fucking humans can't know it right and mm -hmm. i think that that's what really plagues him is that there's no logical way to think of future as being uh unformed before we get to it and but what does that mean in terms of free will and destiny and fate and the control of beings above us uh, up to the deity level? I'm just curious what you guys think about that. Again, I mentioned before Jacques Le Fataliste where, you know, that's a very um, Judeo-Christian take on what is written up above, you know, and the giant scroll that unrolls itself, it will be what it will be. Where the main concern is, is... Uh, free will and predestiny in terms of morality. I don't think Philip K. Dick's very different than most writers I've ever read in that he doesn't locate uh, free will as a question about doing the right or wrong thing, about doing moral things, where that's really not what he's caught up on and the way that he's not caught up on God as a, as a moral or immoral uh, creature and being, you know, that there's something that's sort of very pre, again, to go back to the Greek myths, that's very pre-Christian about all of uh, his approach to all of this. I was just wondering if you guys agree with that or what the fuck you think of it. I mean, th this whole determinist idea makes a lot of sense that, you know, everything's kind of set into motion and, you know, you should be able to predict the future. And it's like, 
you know, if you sort of uh, think about human beings as just like a sum of, you know, environmental factors and influences and inputs, then, you know, you should be able to predict everything that we'll do. And yet that's completely contrary to the human experience. And I think, you know, because, trying to reconcile because the two. mind is so amorphous. Yes. I think that that's the thing that trips it up, but go on. Uh, well, I mean, that was basically my point, but, uh, you know. <laughs> Sorry to step all over it, Ben. No, I would just interrupt you. I feel like I'm so too engaged in this conversation where everything both of you say, each sentence, I have four comments about. Like, I have four <laughs> thoughts on every single sentence you guys say to me, where it's, it's do you, John, do you, I feel like he's not an immoral writer. I feel like he's a fundamentally amoral writer, and that sets him apart from a lot of sci-fi, that it's not about, even when you have a book like this, which in some ways resembles the classic Star Wars, Matrix, Harry Potter, like you have a guy who thinks he's just a regular guy, but it turns out maybe he's the most important guy in all of the universe, right? And he's yeah. going to get pulled out of his cubicle. A lot of those people are, you are, you, you most important guy, you're a Jesus figure, you know? Yeah. And that's well, certainly, or a like Buddha figure in Star Wars. You know? Well, it's funny, even taking it back to Dune, you know? Yeah. The whole idea of Dune, the whole reason that the politics of that book are important is that the characters need someone to fill that role. They need a Jesus figure, you know, to lead them and to show them the golden path, right? Yeah. I think in Philip K. Dick, that importance, that need for the characters isn't there. It's completely obscure and abstract to have to say, here's a planet you've never heard of. If you come here, you will have purpose. You know, if you come here, you will actually be used, able to use the skills that are completely useless on the planet you're on now to be the most important person in the universe. Mm-hmm. Who's telling me this? Yeah. What are these cryptic notes I'm getting? You know, and, and they have no idea if it actually has any relevance to their future or not. Yeah. And by and getting it's also, there, it's just yeah, searching yeah. and discovering in a way that that need is not there. And it's completely intentionally in contrast to all of the ethical moral decisions are constructs that are absurd in this book. You know, about like the immorality of having too many quarters or of considering a job because it you'll that's too many crumbles for you to be getting paid something legal. The, the societal contracts are so silly that the ethical decisions he has to make are rendered completely meaningless. Right, or whether or not to be rude to a robot. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that the ethical decisions are, are absurd. And so he has this almost Kierkegaardian sense of morality where moral decisions are by their nature mysterious you know, that when you make a leap of faith and service of, of a deity, you're doing it not understanding why you make that decision. When God tells you to take your son up to a mountaintop and stab him to death, you have to go do that and listen. And it doesn't make any sense, but it's to obey is moral, you know, as yeah. opposed to the ethical thing of like, don't be stabbing babies, you know. Yeah, no, I think um, you're right. I think that Dick is very old testament in his you know uh christian text and even more so like you were saying the greek gods who were supposedly the puppet masters you know manipulating everything that humankind is doing is definitely more the philip dick construct but also sort of constantly questioning it along the way like it's not 
take it for granted. I mean, one of the most interesting parts of the book he doesn't is believe in it. The yeah. ocean, like it's, yeah. um, you know, faced with his own death and kind of actually questioning, like, you know, should I go through with this or will that just lead to my own death or, uh, yeah. you know, like not I, just death but being trapped in non-death under the water for hundreds <laughs> right. of years. And it's not so bad because you can hide in a box and the bigger fish will leave you alone. I mean, this book is so fucking <laughs> funny. It's so good. It's terrifying and funny at the same time. The Wait, idea... so it's like Lemon broke? Why? Are you trying to sue it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But it's also the totalitarian state that he lives in back on Earth is devoid of spiritual meaning. And I think that this is an intentional irony of living in society devoid of spiritual meaning is overtly bad you know then chasing after spiritual meaning you can encounter things that are just as nonsensical in that way that an ethical society where ethics are devoid of devoid of spiritual meaning which is almost inevitable in a lot of societies is meaningless but then also the moral decisions you'll be called on to make as a human being in service of Glimung and the fog things and ultimately the uh, Amalita, is that the name of the, of the God? Totally arbitrary. Yeah, those are meaningless too in the sense of they're beyond meaning and understanding. You know, hmm. like whatever they're fucking fighting over is like beyond your pay grade. So no, it somehow, has to tell it like you, you'll be a part of this endeavor and like we'll resurrect this thing that will outlive you and like Trust me, that's important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then There's... the deeper you get into it, it's like, is this important? Like, what is, who are these people? You know, in the story of Amelita creating uh, her, his sister, Boral, you know, and just sort of uh, God creating the universe that destroys itself. Out of loneliness. <laughs> Out of horniness and horniness, and sexual <laughs> desire is what is what causes and this whole like hierarchy of like oh it should be his sister because like the, the taboos and like this. Well, it's also rest. Willis explaining it all, so yes. it's fucking amazing. It's wonderful. <laughs> Willis is such a delightful character. I pictured it's funny they don't describe one of the things that I think is a virtue of this book. They don't describe Willis in depth in this book, so I kept picturing in um in the Fallout video game series the Robo Brains which are sort of these like brains and jars on like okay. a cylindrical body with treads, sort of like R2-D2 looking creatures with like flailing Danger Will Robinson arms. So I pictured, I pictured Willis that way this whole time. That's then, funny. Like, I, I pictured uh, Richard Pryor pay, playing him in the way that when he's <laughs> trying to fit in with like the way that his movies, he's trying to fit in with straight people or with, uh, you know, rich people. He has this very like, hilarious stiffness about him yeah uncomfortableness is sort of how i kind of imagined him saying everything yeah and also like yeah totally outsider in some way Mm -hmm. and feeling undervalued and underserved and not taking seriously by the people around him i completely that's funny yeah (laughs) but he's a great he's a fantastic character literally uh one of philip k dick's technological (laughs) uh brick walls made, made no yeah. brick walls made into like a human yes yeah I, like just you know when you said about like there not being a lot of detail in describing willis like that also makes me think of this like screenwriter style writing like even just yeah yeah that's the production designer's problem yeah like that that's the production designer's job like i'm just here to tell you the story and like what people say that's it like that that's that's my job and I'm, like some authors do that really 
poorly where they decide what details not to give or it can be kind of distracting or you want to know yeah. more but like it never really bothers me with the philip k dick stories because like it's so it feels it's so matter funny. of fact yeah it's funny. funny he's always accused of being a bad writer i think that you know the sparseness really turns people off where when he gets into dialogue between two characters it'll just be he said this and she said that like as you said like a screenplay but yeah. then he has these really beautiful descriptive moments like when he's underwater and he finds that perfect uh pot yes says uh the color of the glaze he reflected which attracts uh, attracts me the most the yellows the blues i will never i will never change yeah or kind when he's comparing that to like the, the black window that he's used to at his apartment you know and like here is something that he can really wrap his mind around in a spiritual way or glimmon convincing him to take on the job by showing him one of the shards yeah. and him being like in the description of the shard and like you're like of course he's going to take the job just based on the description of the shard dick doesn't even need to say whether he takes the job or not he just describes the shard yeah when people say he's a bad writer I, it's one of those things that i just go i don't I will never understand what people mean when they say good writing or bad writing. You know, I just will never fucking get it. And I always feel like two complicated sentences, people like just fucking love it. You know what I mean? Just like you sow somebody a Dostoevsky or a James Joyce or a Henry James and they'll be like, now there's a fucking writer. And to me, it's like, this is not necessary this could be improved i was thinking, <laughs> you know when you read like uh, somebody who's getting into writing and they're maybe not that experienced or not that good and you just get that like adjective overload they try to yeah. stick like adjectives everywhere and it's like what, what do you know to look for and it becomes this sort of really obvious kind of almost amateurish thing where you're like yeah. wait i don't need all this or you read man. like alan robegrier and just like please stop describing things like <laughs> right. he walks in a room and you're like you're gonna know what the dresser handle looks like it's just like you have to stop this is unreadable you know yeah, I, think, I think like the yeah. sparseness can be a virtue and just knowing like what to describe what to describe it what's important you know it's sort of you know it puts emphasis on certain things direction towards certain things and like I, I think it's a skill to be able to write a story like this in less than 200 pages like I think it's very like efficient almost sounds like uh you know it's, it's like overly minimalist and it, it's yeah. not actually it's, it's sounds like raymond carver or something yeah like it, it's, it's not it's not a minimalist story but you know it's very uh, efficient and yeah and very efficient packed with ideas yeah i think that's what i respond to in the writing is it's just jam-packed yes. with ideas and every you're constantly every page you're coming across an interesting new idea or a variation on the theme or a refinement on the theme or a reversal of expectation or a reversal of the theme every single fucking page i mean if you want like if you want to read books that are like in the world of Blade Runner, like you're better off reading something like uh, K.W. Jeter's Blade Runner book sequels than yeah, like yeah. actually a Philip K. Dick story. Like if that's the thing that you're attracted to when you watch the movies, like, I mean, thinking about how people try to adapt this stuff to film, um, like I was sort of thinking about like Blade Runner, they talked a little bit about that in the special features like Hampton Fancher and Ridley Scott. Um, it, it's changed quite a bit from the book, but like this idea of like uh, Ridley Scott coming in and in his Ridley Scott sort of way being like, well, you know, it's all in these rooms, what's outside that window? And, you know, like just seeing that as an opportunity to like fill it up with his own like Ridley Scott, you know, production design <laughs> overload. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think like they actually 
responded to that sparseness and used that as like a pretext to kind of get into the cinematic world building design stuff that I think a lot of people respond to with that film or, you know, what sort of appreciated about that film. But like, I think if you go looking for that in a Philip K. Dick story, like you're not going to find it. Yeah, <laughs> like it's literally. more about the ideas than like, like there's no, you know, descriptions about the endless city skylines and the fog and like, you know, that's yeah. not what those books are about. They're about ideas and about how those ideas impact human beings. And it. And like you say, when he describes things, it's because they're important to the story, like the giant uh, staging station to go right. down into the ocean, you know, yeah. and, and if like, he'll describe like what they're riding in, you know what I mean? Like a, a truck or a spaceship or a hovercraft, you know, because that's important to like the story that's going to have to be on screen. Right. In life. But he's well, also- not only is it liberating to have that, you know, you know, science fiction sort of feeling to it where it's like, he's a robot. He's got a phone in his chest. You you know you get the idea, yeah, um, right. but but also to have uh, to make it interesting and more intriguing to have the alien chauffeur smoking a cigarette and thinking how does he smoke that cigarette? You know, it's not answered yeah, in the book. Right. It's, it's almost like mind. a Burroughs kind of a moment. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, totally. How does this beaver creature? No, but again, that reminds me of you know famously like to stick with Ridley Scott. You know, like Alien is being truckers in space. Right. This this movie's expansion of like blue collar aliens is very fascinating and ultimately like more expansive than Alien's vision of that, which I think you know, as much as I love Alien, is a very literal-minded movie in some ways. That's why it gets called a horror movie or a monster movie, you know, kind of thing, is that it doesn't have an expansive sense of the universe. It reimagines, you know, earthly fears in outer space Mm -hmm. in some way. And I think that that's absolutely the opposite of Philip K. Dick, who's always going to be about the most expansive, mind-melting, psychedelic take on every single fucking thing, no matter what it is. There's an actual description in this book that I think sums it up perfectly. Joy's too fierce to be expressed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a good it's an interesting book. Should we um sorry, could should we move on to the desserts? Not to, I don't want to curtail the conversation, but I could keep going forever, so I feel like do we should we should we move on? I'm from good, this? Martin, you got What's your else? final thoughts on the book? I I mean, if if people haven't read it and have actually listened to this conversation, I, I still think you should read it. Like it's yeah, I, I you know, like you said at the beginning, like it's basically a book you can't really spoil, and it's just delightful to read. And um, I, like I, I think almost it, like it's more of a surprise maybe for people who like even if you have some idea of what Philip K. Dick is like, um, you know, the, it might actually be a good hook to get you into reading them like for, for me it was uh, I had already started getting into Philip Dick when I had read it but like I think this is one of the ones that really sort of hooked me into his rea- uh, writing beyond just like oh yeah. this is what turned into the film or, you know like it, it kind of made me a fan of his as a writer more than just like I'm kind of examining this as source material yeah that makes sense but um it makes perfect sense to me there's so many ideas like we we kind of kept jumping all around but you know there's so much to talk about and it's you know like you said 150 pages or i think mine's like 180 something it's it's a very quick read you can read it in uh no time at all you can read it on a bus trip so yeah exactly Uh, it's a great like 
a couple mornings this week on the bus and you'll be yeah and i love how it takes what i I guarantee when you read this book you will say to yourself at one point you will mouth out the words break fast at tiff fanny's breakfast (laughs) guarantee that'll happen that's my guarantee to you (laughs) i've i've got a puzzle for you chris if you want to hear it Let's give it to me. I'm fucking terrible at this. Do you want the clue or not? We do from the game. We're going to play the game right now. Are you ready, Martin? Okay. Okay. Well, it is a book title, but do you want a more specific clue to help you? Let's hear it. I'm so bad. More specific clue is just that it's a book we covered on this podcast. Oh, well, I should be able to get it then. You should be able to get it. You ready? The Luster Mosque. The Luster Mosque. I have no fucking idea. The Glitter Dome. Oh, the Glitter Dome. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, let me just pull up our list of old episodes. <laughs> there. Well, one more? I put one in. I can't remember what it, what, it was, uh, what it was now. This is another thing that we covered on the podcast. Yes. The Mortal Stall. The Mortal Stall. The Human Toilet? What did we cover You're that? You're so right? close. The You're human so close. Chair. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's uh, sort of funny about uh, trying to get those phrases to come out is Google Translate's too good. Yeah, it's yeah, too no. good these days. <laughs> you, know, you go through like several different languages and it spits out the exact same phrase that you put into it. I, I don't know if maybe you try you, different internet. You know, the best language for it is um, Bosque. Okay. No, because Google, if you find a smaller language that that it hasn't been really refined on, you can still get away with it. But if you try and put it into to Chinese or whatever, it's too good now. Yeah, I tried do do Androids dream electric sheep in Japanese, and it came out like, do the androids have sheep dreams? You know, something like that. <laughs> uh, do the androids have sheep dreams? Okay. Um, <clears throat> what I love about this book, though, is how the the, the classic. PKD theme of what is reality gets subverted into uh, am I a failure? You know, am I act? Do I actually have a chance of doing anything that's going to be worthwhile? Yeah. The reality really is, you know, is it my correct path to follow this crazy deity to another planet? Is individualism something that I really want to go for? Do I want to join this group, which is now calling itself not just individual failures anymore? I really yeah. love that uh, he kind of reintroduces that idea with a completely different approach. That's yeah. why, for me why the book works so well. Yeah, I agree with that. There's so much to talk about in this book. We haven't even talked about how Glimung changes forms at the end to become a sort of like earth mother creature after bringing the cathedral up. And just yeah, made me think of uh, Ponyo a little bit, the giant oh, woman in the water. Yeah. Yeah. It actually, it made, this movie made me think a lot about um, the Inspirited Away, the junk creature. That oh, yeah. Water. Yeah, yeah. That, that thing. Just the descriptions of Glimmung is sounding like being a thousand automobiles stirred all with one giant spoon. Yes. Just like the trash being pulled out of the spa, you know, kind of thing. It was a, yeah. definitely the feeling I got with this book. I, I could really picture it, like, almost like a the, the cartoon creation like just yeah you know uh, that that's kind of what it kept going back to it's uh, i think if somebody were to come along and try to adapt this um yeah should be somebody like a miyazaki or somebody like that you know now that we've said it i desperately want a miyazaki version of this (laughs) that'd be delightful (laughs) 
<laughs> and John, what is your dessert? We pair each film and with an aperitif and at the end a dessert to uh, take us out to cap off the meal. So I'm going to make a, a tonal connection with my dessert. Uh, I recommend Robert Sheckley's uh, collection of short stories, Pilgrimage to Earth, which yeah. is a phenomenal, phenomenal collection of stories like this book. Very, very sad and very dispiriting, but at the same time, incredibly clever and funny. The way that this book is, uh, Sheckley, you know, really was a, a forerunner into humor and science fiction. His novel, Dimension of Miracles, you know, was hugely influential to books like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and things like that. And uh, Pilgrimage to Earth is a great example of that. I really thought of like Dudley Moore and Peter Cook playing uh, Joe and, and Glumung in this a lot. I mean, I really yeah. had, they had that dynamic, just the humor of him being under the water and sending up these messages being like, everything's fine. I'm destroying the Black Cathedral. It's fine. You know, you guys are all right. <laughs> or Albert Brooks, you know, starring as Joe. You know, I really had that thought. Um, oh, that would have been great. Yeah. And as we said, there's just so many funny moments. You could just list them all. The house that automatically cremates the elderly resident when he dies. <laughs> yes. It's and, so but funny. Also, yeah, that. and that convinces everybody... Two on the plane, like, yeah, we were right to leave Earth. <laughs> yeah, because it's <laughs> such a grim thing. That, that there's, that it's not completely divorced. Not everybody in this book is not inured to how absurd it is. You know what I mean? Like, mm. people don't accept that. They're like, Jesus Christ, glad we got out of there. Yeah, exactly. And the plants are taking over the world sporadically. I mean, there's just so many <laughs> funny lines in this Gun book. Gun control debate muzzled. Great. Yes, yes. <laughs> some good ones. Some very, very Sheckley-esque, I would say. So pilgrimage to earth great short story collection well it's interesting for my dessert is also a tonal connection which is um the alberto sordo sorti movie mafioso um which what made me think of it when i was reading is it's both about guys who are stuffed in a box by a strange uh, (laughs) all-powerful sort of cartel and forced to go work for them after being carted in this like box but i think the comedy uh in both of them is very similar that there's just something about the te- the terror the comedy of the terror of being confronted by uh, an all-powerful entity who's now focused on you you know and just the idea of like you don't want god paying that much attention to you you know what i mean mm. and the mafioso who are also like glimming and that they're everywhere and nowhere You know, they're both in his head and able to predict what he's able to do. And he also never gets to meet them really in their true version. There's always intermediaries and things like that in this movie in the way that like, what is Glimmung's true form? Well, we don't know. We're always meeting him these sort of intermediary mediated forms uh, in that way. And just sort of being um, sort of forced to do work that is going to define your existence by a creature you're not sure you can say no to in some way uh, is just the the connection I made with it. And also because, you know, uh, this book, Galactic Pot Healer, is a pot healer, which also, that's got to be a Galactic Pot Dealer joke, right, too, on of course. Bill Gates' part. But it's just, uh, if you want to cleanse your palate and have, like, a light dessert, like, follow it up with Mafioso when you're done reading it. If you need something to leaven your, uh, your misery, the 1960s. <laughs> okay. That's great. And also the fact that he has no idea what he's, his purpose is in that going yeah. being shipped over to America. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a lot exactly. of dread and humor come, come from that. 
exactly. He might as well be going to fucking Plowman's planet <laughs> for all he knows of like what's going to happen when he gets there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Martin, uh, what right. is your choice? Uh, so my dessert, I went with the idea of Joe Fern Wright being a uh, restorationist. So yeah. I, I'm going to recommend a YouTube channel called Bum Gartner Restoration, and I think the um, the man's name is Julian. Bum Gartner, and yeah. he restores paintings, and it's really compelling to watch. Actually, like you know, yeah. you can spend hours sitting watching restoring these paintings, and there's something really beautiful about like, oh, you know, that's what it looks like under the varnish, and you know, repairing cracks, and kind of the, I don't, you know, just taking some pleasure in the work itself, and also just what comes of it. You know, I think just to see that in action is really. Yeah. Kind of beautiful. And, you know, it's not boring at all, I promise. No, I believe it. Did you ever see the uh, Fred Wiseman movie, National Gallery? That has not yet. I I keep meaning to see it. Sorry. It's got a great sequence on uh, on restoration Mm -hmm. in that as well. So I'm I'm all in on this. I love shows like. uh, I'm already bookmarking it as (laughs) we're talking, just so. I don't know know if you've seen like the TV show Faker Forgery, but like I always love that that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. It's interesting to see. That's a great suggestion, Martin. Between you and Wendy May's last episode, you guests are coming up with serious out of the box choices here. I really am digging it. Yeah, I've been really really happy with uh with oh. all of all of this with all of our guests and you john i've been very happy with you as well do you have oh. final thoughts do you want to wrap it up do you have an outro how do you want to handle this mr cribs uh, just, just, just terrible it. about the spider in the in the cup oh, <laughs> oh my, it's my God. favorite part oh, of the book and oh, like martin you gotta say what it is yeah go for it <laughs> i i don't this was like the one thing i i thought was in do androids dream of electric sheep and it wasn't until rereading it that i remembered it was in this story or realized it was in the story but it's it's this um memory that joe has about this spider that he found dead in a cup that laid a a web and it's like wondering if you know did the spider realize how hopeless its situation was that nothing was going to come in that web and that it was like doomed to die and did it just like work out of some sense of purpose or out of it's kind of the whole situation summed up in this really simple yeah. elegant way and, and also his relationship to the spider that he has yeah. empathy for the spider the way a god might have empathy for someone smaller than them his relationship to the spider is as a deities to man too mm-hmm. and just the idea of that like christ-like commiseration for suffering too you know we talked about him being like a greek or old testament but right. this also movie has some really interesting thoughts about christianity as well, well they mentioned like also this uh, like when they're talking about the different deities they mentioned this like alien deity that dies every time with uh, with every life form that dies like that's that's it's yeah all, you know and then is reborn with everything is reborn so it, it's like you know it, it can't take away that suffering but it can be sympathetic to you and it can you know die with you and it's you know sometimes that's like you know getting into that idea of uh you know what is a god you know and they sort of have that like criteria of like oh all-knowing all-powerful immortal you know and it's like maybe something that just uh, and then they're like jesus doesn't meet two of yeah, the yeah. criteria. well you know maybe something that just like suffers with you and yeah. emphasizes with you know maybe that's a god i don't know <laughs> But, yeah. Uh, so that that whole little situation with the spider, I thought was you know really beautiful and interesting. And this book know, is so beautiful. Science fiction, it's just uh, you know perfect little uh, you know detail or perfect yeah. little story inside Fable this metaphor. Yeah. yeah. 
What's your favorite Philip K. Dick, Martin? Um, I mean, after reading this, I almost feel like maybe it's Galactic Body Healer. I don't know. It's the last it's, one that you read. That's fine. Yeah, it's always the last one you read, I think. Yeah. John, what's your favorite? I the same answer. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've also I've always had a really personal connection to Flow My Tears, but it's yeah. really great. Also too. Yeah. Yeah, Flow My Tears would be my choice. But and I definitely didn't have a um as much of a like, oh, it's Galactic Pot Healer, although talking about with you guys now, I'm like, is it Galactic Pot Healer? Um, more than when I when I was reading it. It's it's too. It's like it's hard to tell what's like first tier and what's second tier Philip K. Dick, just because of how the movies have right. warped the perception well, of like I, I another reason why I wanted to talk about this one with you guys is because I feel like it doesn't come up that often. Like even yeah. if you read Philip K. Dick or even like on message boards or on, on the internet, like I I just found there wasn't really that much written about it or that much discussing it. Like it seems like uh, I don't know yeah. if people think it's like minor Philip K. Dick or what, but uh, I think people love the 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 trilogy uh, mm-hmm. so much that th- those are the ones that I feel like the Ubik Stigmata the, yeah. Rich trilogy um, that gets held up more than more than any. And I like those a lot. I like those a lot. Those are probably high on my list. Scanner Darkly's great. You know, a Man in the High Castle's great. Like, there's a lot of Martian time slip. Oh my god! I remember. Um, when I went to see uh, Jay Cox talk about uh, Age of Innocence and Silence, he was talking about working with Martin Scorsese to try to adapt a Philip K. Dick story. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Martin you know, Scorsese was like, Philip K. Dick is not literature. <laughs> well, he, he talked about like, you know, getting like a couple weeks into working on this screenplay based on a, I think it was, oh, I'm, I'm trying to remember which, which, I think it was Martian Time Slip. And he yeah. said, like, you know, three weeks into like working on the script, Scorsese just looked over at him and he's like, you know what? I don't think we're Martian guys. <laughs> that was sort of the end of it. <laughs> but it's it's sort of funny to think that maybe there really? was Really? Martian uh, Scorsese? Give me a <laughs> There was almost a Scorsese Philip K. Dick film. But... Yeah. Oh God, it sounds awful. <laughs> it does sound like I don't want that at all. The only way it could be worse is if he reteamed with Richard Price. I definitely don't want the Richard Price screenplay of Philip K. Dick for Martin Scorsese. There's always like I feel like so many filmmakers got attached to a Philip K. Dick story at one point or another. Like, yeah, I love the Verhoeven Total Recall, but I'm always kind of curious, like what the Cronenberg version might have looked like, or you know, you yeah. kind of always sort of wonder what different people. It would look like yeah, that's what it would look like. Yeah, no, I'm sure you're, <laughs> it's probably pretty easy to guess what that would have been like. But, you know, it, it's fun to sort of think of because I think people can take different things away from Philip K. Dick. Like, it's so rich. Yeah. Ideas. Well, what I interesting, like, which idea somebody latches onto. Well, it's interesting. John said there's no perfect adaptation or like essential adaptation. And it's funny, I don't think of any filmmaker where I say that guy and Philip K. Dick are a match made in heaven, mm-hmm. right? Like there's mm-hmm. no filmmaker with a lot of writers. You read them and you're like, ah, oh, you know, X, Y, or Z would kill it with this. You know, I don't yeah. think of anybody with Philip K. Dick, e- even Miyazaki, a Miyazaki version of this sounds amazing, but I wouldn't say it feels natural. No. Like if we hadn't sort of stumbled across it, I wouldn't <laughs> have been like, Hey, you know what I was thinking? Miyazaki is a lot like PKD, you know? No, it's, it's true. Like, it's it's hard to find somebody who would naturally line up with those themes. And But at the same time, they're not like books that I read and think, oh, this should never be made into a film. Like, I actually yeah. think they'd sort of, 
might lend themselves well to something cinematic. Like, you know, we were talking about the, the screenplay sort of style of Philip K. Dick and it's tantalizing to think like, oh, what would the robot look like? And what, you know, how would you realize the battle between the, the Glimung and the Black Glimung? You know, how yeah. would that look? You know, it actually would, I think, translate to film. It's just sort of, like you said, you know, hard to find the right. Yeah. But again, it's so characteristic of Philip K. Dick that that's completely off page. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's interesting, too. You know, I feel like somebody like Ridley Scott is actually sort of interesting, a more like journeyman journeyman director who is in some ways personality free. You know, if anything, like if his personality, if no one had ever called him an auteur. Right. (laughs) Well, like I don't do it. I think it would have been. Yeah. Interesting. Like like Ridley Scott, like (laughs) I, I really love him as. Like, I, I think he's one of the best journeyman filmmakers out there. I don't think of him as an auteur. And yeah. I think, like, you know, I, I consider Blade Runner a great film, but maybe only incidentally or, like, yeah. almost accidentally. You know, I think, like, it's one of those things where if you pulled one of the Jenga blocks, it would all fall apart. Like, if it didn't have that yeah. soundtrack or if it didn't have Rutger Hauer's performance, like, the film would instantly kind of collapse under yeah. itself. And there are things I feel that like, I think yeah. are kind of bad in the film that actually worked just because of like you know Harrison Ford gives kind of a bad performance in that but it almost sort of works because it's about you know the the kind of waking up this guy who's dead inside to his own humanity so yeah well I throw throw Albert Brooks again yeah Albert Brooks in the way that his characters would be really interesting like the way that he goes his characters go on to this unknown you know that they are setting out into a relationship or into the open roads of America or into the afterlife yeah you just reset that as an alien planet and you know you're halfway there yeah Yeah. I think if a director were as sort of talented as Ridley Scott but weren't told we're told you have to respect Philip K. Dick as the auteur here. That's why I was thinking of a journeyman, you know, like somebody who the pitch is, this is a Philip K. Dick movie, you know, like maybe like the Deadpool guy or something, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, no, but you know what I mean? Like somebody who's overtly talented, but the show would be more important than the director for a Philip K. Dick story like this would be, you know, the production designers, the costumers, that like all that stuff is actually, you know, probably more important than like the directorial vision because like you feel like the vision's already there in a story like this. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Martin. I always have a great time when you're on here. I'm glad you suggested us reading this. I'm glad it worked out, yeah. Yeah, this is the kind of book where I feel like I'm now terrified that I maybe would have never read it again, never would have come back to it had you not suggested it. So I pulled pulled Eye in the Sky off of my dad's bookshelf as well, which I haven't read in a very long time. And I feel like I'm psyched up to read it now because of this one. I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. Like I, I was sort of after the last one. Like <laughs> the, the last one was fun, but it was like, oh, I better, I better pick like a real book for the <laughs> next conversation. I, I am bristling at the suggestion <laughs> that Eternal Mercenary is anything less than a life-changing work of art. <laughs>